Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. And if this is your first time listening to the Women's Podcast or you are a recent new listener, we're really grateful. Thank you very much for choosing us. And today we're going to be talking about Anne Frank's best friend, the late Hannah Pick Gosler. And I know a lot of you will have read The Diary of Anne Frank and will be interested in this conversation with journalist Dina Kraft, who worked with Hannah to tell her incredibly moving story. You know, people have forgotten the story uh, that millions of people were slaughtered, slaughtered, you know, and Anne Frank was one of them, right? We think of Anne Frank in her diary, but we don't get to see the aftermath. I, mean, I look at the story as sort of the story that Anna didn't get live to tell, you know? And so that's part of, I think, why Hannah felt like such a mission to tell her story. This is the, this is what happened after she was arrested and deported, you know? That was Dina Kraft there, and we're going to hear more from her about Anne Frank's friend Hannah later in the podcast. And I just wanted to bring you one story of the week relating to women, and it's not about RTE, thankfully, because I think we've had a lot of that. Uh, But it's about the fact that the government has approved the publication of a bill central to its zero tolerance plan to tackle domestic, sexual and gender-based violence. The Criminal Law, Sexual Offences and Human Trafficking Bill 2023 will strengthen the law around sexual offences and hopefully improve protections for victims of sexual offences and human trafficking. Um, It's being debated in the Oireachtas. It will be debated following the summer recess and it's going to see protections strengthened for victims in sexual offence trials where a character reference is provided at a sentencing hearing. So the situation at the moment is if that a witness is called to court to provide character evidence, that evidence is given under oath, but written testimonials are not sworn in. And so the new law would be that the character references presented at sentencing must be made via oath or affidavit. And according to Justice Minister Helen McEntee, this is going to ensure that the person providing the reference swears to the veracity of their statement and that they can be called before the court for cross-examination. So Basically, it will mean that the character reference letters will no longer be able to read out in court unchallenged. And we've spoken about that on this podcast before. This idea of people saying all these amazing, glowing things about uh, people who've done really awful um, sexual crimes. So I think it's a really good thing. And it also uh, strengthens the law around consent, these new laws, because um, at the moment, a person who's found not guilty of rape, if they say they honestly but mistakenly believed they had the consent of the victim, victim. And I suppose this means that the alleged perpetrator can claim they are not guilty of rape because they, you know, they thought they had consent. But that's going to change under the Sexual Offences and Human Trafficking Bill. And the question now is going to be, 
whether the belief is one that is a that a reasonable person would have held under the circumstances rather than whether such a belief was just honestly held. So that's a really big difference too. And it's going to make sure that the belief is objectively reasonable rather than subjective. So some good changes there um, and they'll be debated after the summer recess, as I said. Now, in 1933, Hannah Pitt-Gosler and her family fled Nazi Germany to live in Amsterdam, where she struck up a close friendship with her next door neighbour, an outspoken and fun-loving girl named Anne Frank. For several years, the inseparable pair enjoyed a carefree childhood of games, sleepovers and treats with the other children in their neighbourhood. But in 1942, Hannah and Anne's lives abruptly changed forever as the Nazi occupation of Amsterdam progressed. The Frank family and Anne seemingly vanished, leaving behind their unmade beds and dishes in the sink, but no trace of Anne's precious diary. Torn from her dear friend without warning, Hannah spent the next two years tormented by questions about Anne's fate, wondering if she had, by some miracle, managed to escape danger. Hannah before she died last October, wrote a memoir and it shares the story of her childhood during the Holocaust, from the introduction of anti-Jewish laws in Amsterdam to the gradual disappearance of classmates and eventually the Frank family, to Hannah and her own family's imprisonment in the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. Uh, Hannah chronicles the experiences of her own life during and after the war and provides a searing look at what countless children endured at the hands of the Nazi regime. And it's also, which is amazing for all those of us who read Anne Frank's diaries, a really intimate portrait of, um, I suppose, the most recognisable victim of the Holocaust, Anne Frank. And there's also in the book an incredible reunion with Anne um, at one point. It's a profoundly moving story of childhood and friendship set during one of the darkest periods in the world's history. And I'm so glad that the author of the book, the co-author, has come in to speak to us. Um, She is Dina Kraft and she joined us from Tel Aviv from her newspaper office where she works as an opinion editor. She spent many months talking to Hannah Pick-Gosler about um, her life and the result is is an amazing book, um, My Friend Anne Frank. And I began by asking Dina about her own memories of reading Anne Frank's diary as a young woman. Yeah, I was, I think, 12 going on 13. I was in the seventh grade and Maryland and in the United States. And in the States, it's really common um, that Anne Frank's diary is on the curriculum. Um, So so a lot of people in the States grow up reading her diary. And I read it and I felt so connected to her. I felt so much like she was someone I could relate to. By the end of the book, she really felt like she was my friend. I really felt like I knew her and I felt like sort of a kindred spirit in her. I also got in trouble all the time by my teachers for, for talking too much in class and you know, um, and there's just lots of things that were just familiar to me about her. She was very, very real to me. And I remember reading the last page of the describing the arrest and the deportation eventually to Auschwitz and then her dying with her sister in Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. And I just burst into tears. I was so sad. I really was like truly weeping in my pillow. I mean, it was, it was, I felt like I'd lost a friend. Hmm. I, I think we might be of similar age and I have exactly the same experience and again because I was a bit of a messer and somebody who got into trouble I did relate to her even <laughs> though she was from a different time and a different country and obviously a very different experience than anything I'd had but there was something about her emotional intelligence I think and her honesty and her ability to to explain her circumstances in ways that were just very relatable you could really place yourself there you could think about what you would be like if you were in that situation 
And so that was the power of the book. Mm. So then it must have been kind of amazing for you to kind of continue that, uh, that almost, I suppose, that relationship with Anna Frank, with this book, My Friend Anna Frank. And you worked with Hannah Pick Gosler, your co-author. Tell us how it came about. Yeah. Um, so I got a call from a literary agent who said that uh, Penguin Random House in the UK was looking for someone to help a uh, Holocaust survivor, a woman who was 93, tell her story. But this agent didn't know what her name was, um, but just that she must be somebody, quote unquote, important for them to invest in a story like hers. Um, and I somehow connected the dots very quickly. And I said, is that Hannah Pickgosler by chance? Anna Frank's best friend? And she said, oh, I don't know, but it must be. It, that makes sense. That, 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 you know, who else could it be? You know, and, and this lives in Jerusalem, and she was religious. And I remembered um, I had interviewed Hannah many years before, so I um, I was very excited to be able to meet Hannah again now, all these years later. And to me, it was sort of like a I don't know, almost felt faded. I'd done a lot of research on Holocaust, a lot of research. I did a lot of reporting about Holocaust survivors and about the Holocaust. I myself came from a family that was lucky enough to flee Europe in time all the way um, actually down the bottom of the world to New Zealand. That's where they found their refuge. Um, so for me, the stories of the Holocaust and the stories of survivors um, were very familiar. Um, and I felt like this was an incredible opportunity to tell Hannah's story um, in more detail. It's kind of an extraordinary coincidence because it sounds like the publishers didn't even really know that you had history with Hannah. No, they, they had no idea. And just really weird side note, like three weeks before I got the call from this agent, I had thought of her. I don't know why, but I had thought of her and I had Googled her because I was like, oh my gosh, I hope she's still alive. And I remember her Wikipedia page and I was like, phew. <laughs> and then three weeks later, I got this call. That is really, was t- totally, and I don't use it lightly. I think it was meant to be. Um, mm-hmm. So as I mentioned, the title is uh, My Friend Anna Frank. Tell us about uh, how they first met because what I think is amazing about this book there's only really there's the childhood friendship that she has with Anna. And then there's also the meeting later on, which we'll talk about in Bergen Belsen, which is an extraordinary piece of the book. But um, there's so much more to this story. But what I love about it is that it brings Anna to life in a different way from another perspective. And so if you are people like us who've read that, who've read the diary, it's like opening a whole other window for someone to be looking at her from the outside as a child. So so tell us about that relationship, that friendship between Hannah and Anna. So Hannah and Anna um, met as uh, very tiny girls. Um, Anna was four and Hannah was uh, five. And the first time they caught a glimpse of each other was at a little tiny corner grocery store in Amsterdam where both of their families had just moved in like, you know, the days and weeks before that. They were both German Jewish refugee families. Um, Hannah's family was from Berlin and Anna's family was from Frankfurt. And uh, they were in the grocery stores with their, this little tiny grocery store with their mothers. And uh, they had, they perked up when they heard German behind them. And, um, and they looked around and they recognized, you know, they spoke the same language. And so the mother started chatting and the two little girls sort of shyly clung to their mother's skirts. But they sort of looked at each other, you know, and um, and that was and that was that was one day. And the very next day uh, was the first day of nursery school for for Hannah. And she was, a, she was a kid who was, you know, she was an only child. She was very close to her parents. She was nervous. She was sort of terrified of her first day of school. She didn't want to leave, leave the apartment. Um, she didn't speak a word of Dutch. And um, she and her mother walked down to this nursery school, which was housed in a Montessori school, the school that um, she would end up going to for the rest of her uh, primary school years. And uh, she was sitting, you know, standing there with her mother chatting to the teacher and, and feeling very nervous and shy. 
And she spotted a little girl with shiny black hair um, who was playing a set of silver bells. And this little girl at one point turns around and they glance at each other and they immediately recognize each other from the day before in the grocery store. And Anna comes running over with her arms open. They embrace each other and instantly fall into this sort of like into this friendship and start chattering away in German, these two little refugee girls in a new Dutch setting. It's it's amazing. Like it's it's about like any other friendship, I suppose, in, in any part of the world. But they had that unifying thing, both sort of be, being from Germany. Tell us about their life and about their friendship. And I mean, it's from age four till um, the sort of ter- ter- Anna's 13th birthday is, is the last time they sort of see each other. But what was their life like? Yeah, their life was one, you know, of hopscotch and, and wheeling these sort of um, wheels down the sidewalk and um um, playing in the um, the garden across there was, there was a square across the street from their from their houses. They happened to actually be next door neighbors, um, or, or rather like adjacent buildings, apartment buildings. Um, and um, the neighborhood they lived in was called Rivierbeert. I'm going to sorry butcher the Dutch of the pronunciation, but it was a neighborhood sort of a, a leafy, pretty newish neighborhood built in southern Amsterdam. You know, it was designed for, for as like sort of a, a a neighborhood that's a little bit away from the hustle and bustle of the city. Um, and you, you could get to the center of Amsterdam by tram in about 30 minutes, and mostly families, um, many of them like them, German Jewish refugees. Um, it was the early 1930s when both families moved in in 1934. There was an economic recession. The builder had just built all these new buildings and it wasn't enough and, and people were not uh, moving into them. And then he had this influx of German Jewish refugees who came in. Um, and so there was a lot of, I think, German in the streets. There was even the nickname for the tram. Um, called the Jerusalem Line um, um, between between um, this neighborhood in Amsterdam and another neighborhood in Amsterdam. And um, it was a very quiet, protected, sort of cloistered neighborhood, you know, where people looked out for each other and the kids knew each other and the families knew one another by name and um, very, very friendly. And they would play hide and seek in the Mervitter Plain. That was the name of the square that that their houses faced them onto. And, um, you know, the kids would stay out and even in the coldest of winter days, hang out outside and then come inside for something warm. And um, Mrs. Frank was known as an especially good baker. So they loved her cookies and cakes. So they had this in some ways very protected, lovely childhood. They went on vacations together, the families, the families were interconnected with each other. On the other hand, they had in the backdrop, you know, uh, you know, Hitler and Germany and um, becoming increasingly stronger and the sort of the threat of war hanging over everybody's heads. And Hannah was a pretty aware kid. I mean, she would come home at the end of the school day and read the newspaper on her belly in the living room, you know, and her parents, you know, tried to answer her questions, but both the Frank family and the Gossler family also were very also protective of their girls and tried to keep, you know, their much, very much their, their childhood very much as light and sunny as pleasant as possible. But of course, you know, the news was always seeping in around them. And then we come to May 1940, the Nazis invade the Netherlands. Hannah was around 11 years old at that time, I think. Um, And she when she when the invasion began, she thought it was thunder and she hopped under her parents bed. So tell us about that and how how life changed for Anna and Hannah and I suppose everybody else as well, the Jews there. Yeah, I mean, that first day was incredibly disorienting. Like you mentioned, she wakes up, she thinks it's a sound of thunder. It's actually the sound of German Air Force planes going by, like literally in the sky. The sky is sort of filled with planes, and some people said they could. There was so the, the planes flew so low that they could actually see the swastikas on the wings. And for the first time, she saw her very sort of together parents in a panic. You know, her father had been um, a very senior, very senior position in the in the in back in Germany. He was part of the Prussian government, part of the overall Weimar Republic. 
Um, although he was a religious Jew, he held a very high position there. And he was really scared that the Germans were going to come after him. He thought that he was, you know, he was like a he was like a political enemy of Hitler. He had spoken out against Hitler on radio broadcasts and in newspaper articles. He was a known quantity. Um, and so he, at that point, you know, he really thought the Germans were going to go after specific people. They found out later they went after anybody who was Jewish. It wasn't anybody specific. They just went, if you were Jewish, you were you were going to be a target eventually. Um, but they didn't know that at that point. And Hannah spent that first day actually taking her um, her father's important papers were being ripped into shreds by her mother. And then she was her job was to put those little shreds of paper into a toilet and flush them down the toilet. Um, and they were, um, you know, trying to get rid of any kind of evidence of anything, you know, um, that, that might be suspicious of the Nazis, including a bust of Otto Braun, who was the uh, prime minister of the Weimar Republic and her father's former boss. And they lugged that down the stairs. And when they go down the stairs, they see they're not the only one of their neighbors trying to get rid of things that they thought might be quote unquote incriminating. And also that in the days following, there was a wave of suicide of Jewish uh, Jews, mostly refugees from Germany, who kind of felt like they knew what was coming um, or sense what was coming and they took their own lives. And she remembers, you know, ambulances going by and all sorts of terrible stories. And what was life like for Hannah and Anna under Nazi occupation initially? Yeah. I mean, initially it wasn't so bad. Initially it was pretty quiet and things were so quiet, in fact, that everyone thought, ah, maybe this isn't going to be so bad after all. So they kind of like lulled everybody into complacency and then boom, 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 all these different restrictions started falling in one by one. You know, Jews can't work in certain professions and Jews can't, you know, go to certain parks and Jewish children cannot play with non-Jewish children. Um, they couldn't eventually go on the tram. They couldn't ride their bicycles. As you know, Dutch people get around by bicycle um, very often. And uh, and then one of the worst blows is you couldn't go to school anymore with non-Jewish children. And they loved their Montessori school. And all of a sudden they were kind of cast into the wilderness and and they had to you know scramble and find a Jewish, these quickly arranged Jewish schools to go to. Hmm. I mentioned Anne's birthday party there. Will you tell us about Hannah's memories of that? Because that would have been the last the last main time she would have seen her friend. Yeah. Everyone knew Anna's birthday was coming up because Anna was a girl who liked her birthday, who liked to talk about her birthday. <laughs> and um, she invited the entire class, um, about some 30 children, to the house for the birthday party. She and her other uh, best friend, Jacqueline Van Marsten, had printed up invitations. And um, everyone liked uh, birthday parties at the Frank house because they went all out. Um, they um, you know, had wonderful like cookies and cakes and fresh lemonade and... Um, and because Jews were not allowed to go to the theater, to movie theaters at this point, and because the children, of course, loved going to see the movies, and um, they, Mr. Frank arranged for a um, projector to be brought, uh, um, some kind of mobile projector to be brought to the house, and they created a, they uh, watched a, a movie of Rin Tin Tin on the wall. And um, Anna had arranged all the chairs uh, in a row, sort of movie, movie, um, movie theater style, and everyone had a ticket. And um, it was very exciting and they had a lot of fun and um, and saying happy birthday. And it was a it was a really beautiful birthday party. What they weren't to know was this is the last time the class would be all together as a whole, um, because by the by the summer and by the fall, the deportations were, were starting to happen. And a few weeks later, basically, Anne was was gone, I think, a few weeks after yes. uh, after the birthday. And. That it's interesting that Hannah thought that she was told that they'd gone to Switzerland to try to find safety. But of course, we know that they had actually gone to hide in the annex above um, the father Otto's uh, office. 
you you met Hannah in Jerusalem when you would do these interviews, was because that's where she moved to. So you'd go to her home for a couple of hours a day. By this stage, she's in her nineties, remembering all of this. But she spent a lifetime talking about Anne and about talking about her experiences. So do you did what did she say to you about going to? I think she went to the door that day or something to find out where Anna yeah. was. Yeah, she went to the door that morning. It was a July morning, nineteen forty-two. It was really exact. It might be exactly like it was this week. Um, it was July that sort of that first week of first second week of July, um, and she went to go. Um, if, I can't remember now. Either to return or to borrow a scale from Mrs. Frank that her mother wanted to borrow uh, for making jam, and she also wanted to play with Anna. It was it was it was summer vacation. She wanted to go. She wanted to just go home and play, and you know she got a shock when the, when the door was answered, not by one of the Frank family members, um, but by their boarder. They had a boarder who lived in the, lived in the upstairs bedroom. And he came down and kind of flustered and a little annoyed. And it's like, well, the Franks left, you know, and it looks like they went to Switzerland and she was completely like, what do you mean? He, they left, you know what I mean? I mean, at this point, you know, thing, things were getting more, you know, tense and difficult and they're, already had been some deportations. And so I think the idea of like kind of going into hiding was out there in the ether, but this was the first friend that had suddenly vanished, you know? Um, and uh, Mr. Frank had left this letter that kind of made it sound like perhaps they had been smuggled in, they were going to be smuggled into Switzerland with an old World War One army buddy of his. Now, if anybody who like kind of put this under any kind of like um, uh, deep thought would realize that it was impossible to get across the Swiss border at this point. You know, it was really kind of a tall tale, but this is what he sort of put out there to throw people off their trail. So, um, but she, she arrives that she arrives that morning and she ends up coming back with her other good friend, Jacques, Jacqueline, and they go into the Frank house. They go up the stairs into the Frank apartment and they're shocked because this very orderly family had like left the apartment in a state, you know, the breakfast dishes were still in the sink. The beds were unmade. It was made to look like they had like left in a, in a, in a hurry. And um, they crept into Anna's room, which she shared with her sister, Margot. And her, you know, her writing desk was there and next to her window and the two beds. And they started looking for her diary because they knew how much she coveted her diary. Um, they wanted to see if she left it behind or not. They wanted to see in general what she, what they had taken and she, and she had taken. They also wanted to see if she left behind some sort of goodbye note to them or some kind of clue to what had gone on, what, why she was suddenly gone. And um, they couldn't find the diary. And they were a little bit bummed about that because uh, Anna had told them that she'd written a list of all the kids in their class and what she thought of them. In America, we call that a slam book. I don't know what you'd call it in Ireland. But um, but they were curious to see what she was, you know, what she was saying about their them and about their friends, and um, and so that was not there. Um, a couple of books were missing. They noticed, but uh, and but but the games that she loved to play and one of her favorite pairs of shoes that she had just gotten for her birthday, um, were still there. And then most curious of all, she had a black cat cat named Muchi, who she loved. Mortzi, Mortzi, I'm sorry. And uh, and the cat was the cat was still there, and that made no sense to them because. Because she loved that cat. She wouldn't go anywhere without that cat. You know, wouldn't have gone anywhere far away without that cat. Um, the, the the tenant said that, oh, you know, that 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 um, the Franks had arranged that a neighbor upstairs would take the cat and not to worry. But it was all very strange to them. But they both took solace in the idea that their friend Anne was in a better place, that she was in Switzerland. Um, and, and um, you know, gradually, that, that was July. By September, when they go back to school, every single day, a different child is missing at roll call, you know, and they don't know if that child is sick or if that in this home, you know, recovering from the flu or something, or if that child has been taken away by the Nazis and deported and arrested and sent east, whatever east means. They just knew they were being sent to camps in the east. Um, 
or if they'd gone into hiding, they just didn't know. But Anna, Anna thankfully was having hot chocolate with her grandmother in Switzerland and ice skating with her cousins. And that was, those are the images that she still had. And now there was uh, trains coming to take people away to, to the camps. And Hannah's family was taken in almost a year after that. And her description of being taken away with her father and her sister, Gabby, and her grandparents is really very, very moving. So tell us what happened. Yeah. So this was one of the last roundups, you know, that had taken place in the neighborhood um, and taken place in Amsterdam, rather. Um, it was June 20th, 1943. And it had completely taken them by surprise. Usually there was some sort of word that was leaked out that there was a deportation happening, but this time it was boom. They had no idea. All of the bridges um, uh, in the the city were blocked off by military trucks. There was no route to escape, to hide anything. Um, And very early that morning, um, trucks were blaring saying, you know, all Jews report, come downstairs and report with your suitcases to you know, um, to these uh, parks. These are two different parks in the neighborhood where people were supposed to to come, to come and go. And Hannah's father was like, well, we don't have to go because we have special protection because his her grandfather and her father were part of what was called the Jewish Council, which until that point had given their uh, Jewish Council was the de facto leadership of the Jewish community inside Amsterdam. And they were given sort of, um, they basically had permission to be spared of these deportations. So he thought they would be okay and they wouldn't have to go down. And then all of a sudden there was a, a knock on the door and it was one of the the police, like the green police, which like the Nazi police at the door saying, you know, you have to quickly come with me. You have like, you know, I think it was 20 minutes to pack your belongings. And um, and her father reassured her, I'm sure there's a misunderstanding. Um, and she was left to quickly kind of get herself together and also her sister together. They had these bags already packed, you know, for months in, 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 the, in the case this, this might happen, but still it was a terrible shock. Um, they barely had any time to even like, you know, think or grab any kind of food for the way. Um, and mind you, at this point, um, Hannah's mother has just died just a few months prior. Her her mother had died in childbirth in the house, um, gave birth in the, in the house and gave birth to a stillborn baby brother. So they were still reeling from that tragedy. And uh, and Hannah become the de, vac- de facto sort of caregiver of her little sister after that. And her sister, Gabby, was only two and a half years old. And as they're poised to leave the house as they're sort of, you know, there with their bags in hand and walking out the door, up rushes the stairs, Mrs. Maya Houtsmit, their downstairs neighbor, uh, who was originally from Germany. And she says, a non-Jewish woman, and she's very close with the family and close with the girls. And she tells the the Nazi officer, um, please, can I at least have the little girl? Surely you don't need this little girl. I will take her. And he says, are you not ashamed to be a Dutch woman you know, a Dutch Christian woman um, offering to accept a Jewish child. And she says, no, I am proud to be, uh, and I'm actually a German Christian woman. I'm proud to take this child. They said, of course, no. And off and off the family had to go through the streets um, to this gathering point and where they found all their other Jewish neighbors who were still around, um, you know, with their suitcases and their sandwiches and their bottles of milk and water. Some of them, it was really striking some of the women were very well dressed, you know, like in, in their silk silk dresses and shirts because they thought they might get better treatment if they looked like proper ladies, you know. So what happened then? Where were they taken? They were taken to a transit camp. Some call it a concentration camp um, on the border of Holland and Germany, about three hours north of Amsterdam by train, a place called Vesterbork. It was a sort of strange purgatory, you know? They were neither here nor there. They were very grateful to still be on Dutch soil. Um, and they were allowed, to, you know, they had these sort of different 
jobs, you know, uh, working with batteries or old, taking, you know, shoes apart and taking leather, making leather out of them and recycling them. So they had these sort of like dreary jobs, um, but they were still allowed to, um, and, they, and the men and women were separated into different barracks. And Hannah was sent to an orphanage um, on, uh, within Westerbork for children who were missing, you know, one or in some case, two parents. Hannah was sent there because she was motherless. Um, so on the one hand, it was sort of dreary and it was, uh, you know, she was suddenly in a um, her very first night, she's in a in, in a bunk and her mattress is made of straw and she starts itching and she realizes that it's full of fleas. And, um, you know, she very, it was a very sad first night, you know, kind of realizing she was, you know, basically a prisoner. But on the other hand, um, there was the, 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 the adults in uh, Vesterberg were very organized. Um, they set up sort of schools and classes for the kids, um, singing groups and uh, lessons about Jewish history and Jewish holidays. And um, they set up plays for the children. And they also put on these amazing cabarets themselves. A lot of the people there, of course, they were from all walks of life, but including artists. And so there were a lot of, um, there happened to be a sort of a whole sort of troop of artists there who put on shows uh, for the Nazis, uh, but also other people could watch them as well. So there was a sort of this weird, weird, weird mix of like normalcy, and um, and then this terrible, terrible dread, of course, that filled the air because whatever sort of normalcy or calm there was was shattered every Monday night when a list would be read, read of who were the next batch of people that would be deported by train um, on Tuesday mornings. It was really quite torturous, and it, it's part of the torture, I think, that the, that the Nazis. Um, put the Jews under was to always keep them guessing, to always make it unclear what was going to happen next for them. And remember, at this point, they didn't know what was awaiting them. You know, they knew they were being sent to these work camps. They knew that it was strange that babies were sent to work camps and that elderly were sent to work camps. They knew it was strange that nobody wrote letters from these places and that nobody ever returned. Um, and of course, there were rumors that. Um, that the terrible things were happening, but they didn't know for sure. Mm. And so they were moved then at one point to Bergen-Belsen. Mm -hmm. So tell us about them going to Bergen-Belsen and how that happened about meeting Anna again. Yeah. So after about a year in, in Vesterbork, um, Hannah and her family are deported to Bergen-Belsen. Initially, her father is quite elated. He thinks this is, quote, unquote, an ideal, calls it an ideal camp. It's going to be better than Vesterbork. There'll be better food. There'll be better conditions because they have two things going for them. A, they've, they have they have a foreign passport in the form of a passport from Paraguay that um, Hannah's uncle was able to buy them. <laughs> and they were also on something called the Palestine list, which meant that they had sort of connections or relatives in Palestine. And the idea was that the Germans were going to hold these um, Jews as um, exchange Jews. They would exchange them for German prisoners of war with the British. So the idea is they're going to have better conditions. They had, to, they had to be kept in good health, right, to be exchanged. That's why her father was was sort of, you know, thinking this was going to be a good thing. But as soon as they arrive in Bergen-Belsen by train, they realize this is not going to be a good thing. They see the barbed wire and they see the German shepherds and they see the poor shape of the barracks. And they realize they're actually in a worse place than Vesterborg. And they're also no longer on the safety of being on Dutch soil. They are in German soil now. Hannah and her sister are put in one set of barracks for the women and, and her father is in another and um, and her father has to, you know, um, his health is getting progressively worse and worse. Her grandfather, might, meanwhile, has, has died of a heart attack back in Westerbork. Her grandmother is still alive. Her father's health deteriorates, and then her grandmother's health deteriorates. Um, and the situation gets worse and worse and worse as time goes on. As the Germans are basically losing the war, um, they are 
getting fed less, getting less water. And uh, and soon the, the, the camp is becoming very, very overcrowded. And they don't really understand why at first. But what's happening, you know, we now know in hindsight, is that the Russians are approaching and uh, in, on the Eastern Front. And the Germans are trying to get as many Jewish prisoners out of Poland and into Germany. And um, and so they're bringing people in either on these, what they call death marches, or by train into, into places like Bergen-Belsen. So across the fence from the camp that Hannah is in, remember, Bergen-Belsen was a huge camp, and it was full of these sort of sub-camps. So they were in one, one sub-camp called the Star Camp. And then across the fence, they start seeing um, people being brought in and housed in these, in these tents. And um, inside the tents um, are these women in black and white prison garb, the strike uniforms of the, of, they come from Auschwitz, it turns out. And um, they were quite emaciated. And um, the women started trying to speak to each other from across the fence. Um, and they were forbidden from doing that and told it was like a pain of death that they would actually talk to each other. And, um, but, but women being women, somehow, they started, you know, exchanging bits and pieces of information. And one day, Hannah's in the barracks and a woman comes up to her from the old neighborhood in Amsterdam and says, Anna Frank is across the fence. She's, she's among the women in the tent. And she said, what are you talking about? Anna is in Switzerland, you know, ice skating and, and having hot chocolate with her family. What are you talking about? That can't be true. And the woman insists, no, 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 she is there. And, um, and so Hannah can't believe this and wants to sort of find out for herself. And although the women in the barracks have said to her, you know, really be careful. You shouldn't go out. You shouldn't go out. You know, it's very dangerous to go out. She leaves that night after when it gets dark after curfew at after 8 p.m. And not a lot outside the barracks, but she goes out anyway. And she uh, approaches the fence, you know, trying not to slip in the trying not to slip in the mud and trying not to be noticed and trying to sort of crouch down from the searchlights, you know, and also knowing that the Germans are patrolling the fence, you know, and she could she could be shot and killed on the spot. And she calls out in a quiet voice, hello. Anybody there? And all of a sudden, a, a, a voice comes from the other side of the fence. Mind you, at this point, the Germans, in order to, to, to prevent contact between the women on both sides, have stuffed this fence with straw. So you can't see, but you can hear. And so a woman says, oh, um, um, uh, they start chat cheating. She introduces herself as August van Pels. August van Pels was the woman, the other woman in the, in the, in the secret annex with Hannah and her family. Um, so she she knows Hannah from, again, back in the neighborhood, their families were friends. She says in a voice is almost casual, like, hi, okay, you must be here for Anna. I'll bring her to you. And so she sits there kind of stunned and okay, and waiting for Anna to appear, as it were, on the other side of this fence that she can't see. And Anna's presented to her and she immediately recognizes her voice, but it's a broken kind of quiet or raspy voice. And I'm not the same. And it's not the, she's sort of complete. And it was this very vibrant girl, you know, that kind of filled up the room with her energy and, and sort of delighted and exhausted people around her. <laughs> and suddenly she was this fragile sort of shell of the Anna that she once was. And the first thing they do is just both cry. You know, it's just so pitifully sad. Here they were, these girls that were coddled and loved by their families. And here they are, you know, you know, 15 and, and just turned 16. And, um, you know, Anna's in rags on the other side and, and has on, on her, on, on her side of the fence. And, um, and, and then they're quickly catching through, they're up on, on the details of their lives. Hannah tells her that her mother has died in childbirth. Anna did not know that. Um, she tells her that, you know, um, her father, um, is very ill and that her grandmother, um, but her grandmother is still alive. And Anna wails back and responds, but I am all alone. I am all alone. Her sister at the point is very sick and she feels that yeah, feels that she might not be with her much longer. And she assumes that her father and mother 
have both been gassed at Auschwitz because anyone over 50 years old was immediately gassed at Auschwitz. And her parents were, her father was over 50, her mother wasn't, but her mother wasn't in great shape when she'd last seen her in Auschwitz. And she tells Hannah about the gas chambers. Hannah's never heard about the gas chambers before. She cannot begin to comprehend what that even means. And Hannah is freezing and she's sick and she's hungry. She's terribly, terribly hungry. And she says, can you please bring me some food? And Hannah had no idea how she was going to bring her any food because she barely had any food herself. But she immediately says, yes, I will bring you food. And she creeps back into the darkness, back into the back to the barracks. And there awaiting her are these women who have become her friends, who've also become like her family. There's a particularly one woman, Mrs. Abrahams, as you read, who sort of adopts her and her sister and brings them into the family unit. And that, I think, is a very beautiful story of female solidarity. These women who have nothing are so moved by the story of this reunion of these two best friends that they cobble together the little they do have and create a little like food package for her. They had just received one of the two only packages they got the entire time there in Bergen-Belsen from the Red Cross. This is not a lot of food, but it was a little bit of you know rusk bread and some dried fruit. And they took what they could. They stuffed it into a sock. And um, Hannah went off out again into the cold, into the night, into the danger of, you know, being shot if if discovered. And again, calls out to Anna. Anna comes back to the fence. And again, I just have to say, like, when I think of this, I think back about how what a contrast it was to their lives in Amsterdam, where they would call out to each other to go to school in the mornings, you know, and they had a special whistle that was just their own whistle. It was the, to the tune of the Dutch national anthem. And um, and here they were instead of whistling and saying, let's go to school. This, this is what they were doing. Although another example of their hope, one of the things they did say to each other at the fence is, I hope I see you back at school in the fall. I mean, they were living through the most extreme degradation, right? And extreme dehumanization possible. And yet they still had hope they might be back at school. You know, they could still imagine something normal in the midst of that hellscape. And anyway, Hannah um, says, I have food for you, Anna. And Anna says, okay. And she, Anna throws it over the fence. And all of a sudden, she hears footsteps, but she hears a scream, a wail. Anna is screaming. She's saying, somebody took the food. Somebody took the food. And it was this woman, this other prisoner from Hungary, understandably. Like, who can? Who are we to judge, right? She saw the moment and she grabbed the food and runs away with it. And, and she's inconsolable. And so Hannah just says, again, not knowing where she's going to get food the second time, barely knew how she got it the first time. She says, I will come back again. Just, just please stop crying. Just, you're, they're going to hear us, you know? And so um, again, she creeps away, and uh, and then there's one final final um, visit back to the fence, which you can read about more in the book. <laughs> Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
what happens to Hannah then? Because she, her, her ordeal is not over, but she does manage to survive, which is incredible. Yeah, yeah. Um, her ordeal is definitely not over. In some way, the very worst of it um, is about to come. She, um, she at this point, like many of the people in the camp, has typhus. There's a huge epidemic of typhus that swept the camp, and people are dying left, right, and center. Her father has died at this point. Her grandmother has died at this point. She is taking care of her little sister, she weighs 30 kilos <laughs> and um, all around them in the, in the barrack, around the outside of the barracks are stacks and stacks of corpses. Um, and um, the Germans say anybody who's basically healthy enough to walk and get themselves to this train station nearby uh, is ordered to leave the barracks right now uh, and go. And so it's, I think, April 10th of 1945. And she and um, her sister... And some and Mrs. the lovely Mrs. Abraham, who has been helping her and her children, they all make their way to this tr- the train station nearby, and um and they're loaded onto a new set of trains, and they don't know where they're going. Meanwhile, remember that this is the end of the war. Like they can hear bombing raids. They can you know there's there's it's 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 sort of mayhem in the skies, <laughs> um and they're loaded onto these trains. On the way onto the train, there's a German soldier who offers her sister Gabby, you know, again who's uh, just barely four at this point, a cookie. She doesn't even know what a cookie is. She doesn't even know what it is, you know? Um, and that becomes among the only pieces of food she, she, she has. And they go on this long, long journey that lasts for 13 days through meanders through the East, Eastern German countryside. Every time there's a, a bombing, they're told to get off of the train and, and get onto the ground um, if they were well enough to do so. The people who were too sick stayed back on the train. Um, they were given no food and no water. People were very, very sick. Um, people were dying on the train. They were burying them on this when the train did come to a halt. They were burying these people, you know, uh, next to the train tracks. Um, Hannah is very practical. You know, she um, she finds a place next to the door of the train um, for her and her sister to, to lie to sit down on because she's hoping it's going to a cattle car. She's hoping that like the fresh air will be good for them, and she's trying desperately to keep this one little blanket she has left clean or clean-ish. Um, but they're sitting next to them is a is a man who's very sick and he's basically collecting his own diarrhea in a in a cup. At one point, he tries to sort of, you know, um, spill this out to the open door. Uh, but unfortunately, it falls all on Hannah and she's just covered. And it's the only time I would say she sort of like loses her cool, you know, uh, remarkably. She just starts screaming and has like a fit. I mean, she's just like she'd done everything she could to just stay clean. And now on top of this misery, she's just covered you know, in someone else's excrement. I mean, it's just, it's just beyond imagining. Um, and she, remember, she's also sick, you know, she's feverish and she's sick. And at one point she just passes out on day 13, she passes out. And when she wakes up, the um, train door is open. Uh, there are not many people left inside the train. She asks what happens. And someone says, what, you missed it? We were liberated. The Russians liberated us. And she's like, what do you mean? She's like, I, she'd been waiting for this day for years and she's, she was so upset she'd slept through, you know, this pivotal moment. Um, and from that point forward, she is free. What what was it like working with Hannah, talking about Anna Frank and, and how did you find the experience with her as well? Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a, I sort of look at it as like a very beautiful task, you know, it was a really hard task, but a really beautiful one. Um, it was COVID days when we started working together. So I um so at first um a lot of the interviews were by Zoom. Um and then sometimes they were inside her apartment uh, in Jerusalem, but even then behind a mask, um, because again she was 93 and didn't want to get want to get her is sick. 
Um, but we had these, you know, we had an instant rapport. I feel like she was very smart. She didn't miss a beat. Her mind was so sharp. She remembered so many things. And she also, whatever was going on in her current world, she was totally on top of as well. You know, like she was just uh, very much following the news and politics and current events and very curious about everything that was happening in the world. You know, we were going through very, very difficult material, though, you know, and although she had been spending her life, you know, in 1957, after the success of the diary and then the Broadway play, Otto Frank basically taps Hannah to tell her story. And, uh, and this is a time when Holocaust survivors uh, were not telling their stories. In fact, there was no even term for Holocaust yet, you know, not until the 1960s was there a term Holocaust. And so people and, and people didn't really want to know uh, the stories of survival in those early days. In fact, when Hannah comes back to Holland after the war, People did not want to hear what she had gone through or what her friends and family had gone through. And this is a good point to point out to people that despite the story of Anne Frank and the very heroic Dutch people that saved their family, most Dutch people were not in the business of saving up the, their, their Jewish neighbors, you know, for a variety of reasons. Um, and uh, 75% of Jews in Holland um, did not come back from the camps, 75%. Um, and so, um, when you look at Hannah and Anne and her friends, there's like a photograph of actually of Anna's 10th birthday party. It's in the book and you know, all the little girls in their frilly dresses and their Mary Janes and the bows in their hair and little bobs that were fashionable back then that they wore their hairstyle in. There's a picture of them and Hannah is embraced, you know, with four, she's in a line of four girls and amidst this group of about 10 girls. And of those four girls, all Jewish, only Hannah comes back, you know, which is like a visual representation of what, what the, what the toll was. Um, so she goes off and tells her story back then. And so on the one hand, she was used to telling her story, right? So when we were sitting down, like, you know, she was very, very versed telling her story. The challenge was to get new details, to get her to kind of go more, uh, to get, to go to a more emotional place. And that was not always easy for her. Hannah would often come, we would, we would be speaking for an hour or two and she would say, well, I'm really tired. I think we have to stop. This is too much. And I would always say, of course, we can stop whenever you want to stop. We can stop right now. And then she would almost always get a second wind and keep going. You know, it was, it was, she was like drained by it, but also energized by it. Interestingly enough. And she died last October. Yes. Yes. So we were, I was very lucky. We were very lucky. I really spoke to her in just in the nick of time because we were doing our interviews last spring and by the summer she started ailing and by the fall, she, by October she died. And so it was almost like the split screen moment, especially like in the late summer, early fall where like she was, literally like in her deathbed and and I was writing as quickly as I could, you know, and asking questions. And I was still able to sort of ask her questions towards, even towards the end, you know, I mean, filter through her daughter who would sort of pass those on. Her daughter was very helpful throughout the process. She was with us for most of the interviews and she knows her mother's story backwards and forwards. Um, and she was help, very much help, helpful in sort of filling in the gaps that I, they needed along the way. And listen, do you know, why do we need more books like this? Because some people might say, oh, we've heard all about these stories. You know, we've heard so much about Anna Frank. But I think your book brings a, a another maybe perspective, but also it's just still feels very relevant in a world, in the world that we live in now and in how people are still othered and how uh, we are not um, seeing we're seeing terrible things happening in places like Afghanistan and other places Um I think we still need books like this. I'm sure you agree because you wrote one, but what do you think about that? And anti-Semitism is still very much there as well. Yeah, anti-Semitism is on the rise. Hatred and hate crimes are on the rise. We have this sort of spread of like right wing, like very sort of far right populism, you know, and uh, we live in an era where where truth is not really considered truth anymore. And, and, and everything is sort of magnified by social media, spreading messages of, 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 of disinformation and hate in a level we can never imagine before. 
But also, you know, people have forgotten the story uh, that millions of people were slaughtered, slaughtered, you know, and Anne Frank was one of them, right? We think of Anne Frank in her diary, but we don't get to see the aftermath. I, mean, I look at the story as sort of the story that Anna didn't get live to tell, you know? And so that's part of, I think, why Hannah felt like such a mission to tell her story. This is the, this is what happened after she was arrested and deported, you know? Um, and, and, you know, Hannah felt very, very strongly that people needed to know that Jews were killed because they were Jews. That was the only reason they were killed. And that hatred kills and racism and hatred in its ultimate form kills. And this is a cautionary tale that we still need hearing today. And I would say it's ever more urgent. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That was Dina Craft there. And my friend Anne Frank is in the shops now. And it's a really moving book. And as I said, if you've read Anne Frank's diary, you'll be really, really interested in that. And if you enjoyed this episode and the podcast, please leave us a review or subscribe to the podcast. It really makes a huge difference to us. The podcast is produced by Suzanne Brennan and me, Roisin Ingle, with JJ Vernon on sound. Talk to us on social media. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Media at IT Women's Podcast or email us thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. That's it for me. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time.